Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Continuing in our walk through the book of Acts, Jason is now looking at part two of Peter's sermon. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 22. Here's Jason. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here, and I I get the pleasure and the, the privilege of preaching through the book of Acts. And today we are continuing through what I've entitled Peter's Powerful Preaching, Part 2. We started this last week as we saw, honestly, the first sermon in Christ's church. The first sermon in the New Testament, really the first Christian sermon ever preached, is the sermon that we are looking at. And what I brought forth last week was the example that Peter's sermon is. Basically for all pastors, but for all of us, that we would know what a good sermon looks like. And I said the reason that we know that Peter's sermon is so good is because it, it contained these, these three things that, that made up his sermon and that should make up every God-honoring sermon that is preached today. And, and, and I said first it was, it was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that could be seen if, if you think through what happened at Pentecost, that, that the Holy Spirit came, that it then indwelled, well, first it baptized, then indwelled, then, then he came and he, and he filled, he controlled all of those that were present, the 120, and they spoke in tongues. But I don't believe that the filling, the controlling stopped there. That when Peter stood up to preach, that he was indeed preaching by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he didn't stand up and merely give his own opinion. He took them to God's Word. And so the, the second aspect was grounded in the Word. And, and finally, I, I said it, it needs to be centered on Christ. And I, and I took us to Acts chapter 2, verse 21, the last verse, and it, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I said that that Lord there is referring to Christ. And that is where Peter is going to go next. So in essence, what, what he does is he, he makes everything that is happening there on that day in, in Pentecost clear and plain and understood by teaching them God's Word, but he doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't just want to explain what is unfolded before them, but he wants to explain the reason behind the unfolding, or really the person behind the unfolding. And so that is what he's going to get into today. As last week, he, he, he quoted this Old Testament portion of Scripture found in, in the prophet of Joel. And he used that to explain that this then is the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was promised back in the Old Testament with Joel. And now he's going to use that and he's going to connect that to, to Jesus. And what we're going to see is, is, is really the gospel today. What we're going to see is, is the most amazing truth contained in, in all of God's Word. Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. So, if you haven't turned there with me yet, turn there now. 
Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 28. Which reads, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and, and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is contained in your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. And thank you that he is Lord of all. We pray now that you would make your word clear and understandable and that you would allow your Holy Spirit to walk us into all truth, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So you'll notice in your in your bulletins, if you guys like to take notes, I, I've I've given you a, a, a bit of an outline. I recognize that most of my outlines are quite simple, and and that's okay. And and, and to be honest, the reason is because I don't want to be the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be the one that tells you what you need to write down as as far as the notes go. I want the Lord to do that. And so all that I'm giving you are are, are kind of benchmarks. And you can jump in and you can add whatever else you want to. And I would encourage you to do that so that you can continue to soak in God's truth throughout the rest of the week. But you'll notice that what I've actually labeled this outline, and and I've labeled it the gospel proclaimed, because that is what Peter now does. He's not... He's not just comfortable alone with merely telling them, okay, yes, this is a time of the Holy Spirit. This is a time, a new era, a new dispensation of the church age, of the age of grace. He, he wants to lead them somewhere and he wants to lead them to Christ. So that is what he shows. It's a gospel proclaimed. And first we're going to see Jesus' life in verse 22. Then we're going to see Jesus' death in verse 23. Jesus' resurrection in verse 24. And then finally, Jesus as Lord in 25 to 28. So first, with, with Acts chapter 2, verse 22, let, let's look together at Jesus' life as Peter describes it, teaches us about it. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So notice again where he starts it with, and, and, and that is with the audience. We, we already know who he's preaching to, but he's, he's segueing. He's showing, okay, now I'm done with, with giving this quote from Joel, which he does from memory, and now he's, now he's transitioning into something new. And so he says, men of Israel. Why is Israel so significant? Because that was God's chosen people. 
And what had they done? They had rejected the chosen one, the Messiah, their own Messiah. And that is exactly where Peter's going to point. And he's going to get more and more pointed as we go through. And, and, and we'll see next week, he, man, he's going to take out a bat <laughs> and he's going to make it so clear that you guys did this. In order to what? In order to bring them to the place to, to where they would actually repent. That he then calls for a response. But look at the first word that he says after the address of who he's talking to. Listen. Listen to these words. That That's a command. He's, he's not giving an, an option. He's telling them, listen. And no doubt at, at that point, everybody was quiet. Remember, he's speaking in Aramaic or in, in, in Koine Greek. And, and there's thousands of people here listening to him. And he's speaking without a microphone. And notice what he says about Jesus, the words that he used. This, this isn't normal. When, when I think of Jesus, I, he says Jesus the Nazarene. I think of Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He uses Jesus the Nazarene. Which doesn't seem to make any sense except for the fact that if you understood who he was talking to, that no doubt there were many Jesuses during that day. And by establishing the fact that he is talking about one particular Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth. You could translate that as Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And you know what he was designated by throughout his earthly ministry? You know what everybody called him in that general area, in that vicinity? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. So much so that when Pilate constructs the sign to put on the cross. Do you remember what it said? If you're like me, you probably forgot about the first part. (laughs) And you're thinking, oh yes, Pastor Jason, it says the king of the Jews. Right? That's the second part. The first part says Jesus the Nazarene. And and that's found in in John 19.19. And if that isn't strength enough, when we're going to get to Acts 24, almost to the the time when we're finishing the book of Acts, we're going to see there that believers, Christians, one's called the way, another delineation, a description for believers becomes part of the sect of the Nazarenes. Everything points to, to this fact that Jesus was from Nazareth. So it is a big deal and it would allow them to know exactly who Peter is talking about. But notice next what he says. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. This verb attested brings forth the idea of to show forth the quality of an entity. Basically, God's saying, and and I attested, I proved who Jesus is. By what? By these three things. Two of which we saw earlier in, in verse 19 last week. Miracles, wonders, and signs, right? But what we saw last week was just that I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below it. it, it, This idea of miracles wasn't added. He adds miracles into the mix here. And and this is very uncommon. And why is it uncommon? Well, what he's trying to do is he's trying to amplify the fact that what Jesus did on the earth was amazing. And it was different than anybody else that had ever lived. 
And in essence, what did it do? It proved who he was. And you can see this in each of these delineations because they are different. They're not all the same, even though we may think of them. Oh, a miracle and a wonder, it's all the same. No, it's not actually. A miracle is a deed that exhibits the ability to function powerfully. In in essence, it's a deed of power. And, And what it's revealing is that God's power is on display in the life of Jesus, which shows proof that he was indeed God. Which is why it was such a big occurrence for the Pharisees when they saw Jesus' power being displayed to say, oh no, that's, that's not by the power of God, that's by the power of Beelzebub or Satan, right? It's, it's because of this. Because this showed, this clearly delineated, this attested, this testified to the fact that this was indeed God. There's no other way that this could happen. But then he goes on further and he, and, and he says wonders. That it was by his wonders as well. And, and that's something that astounds because, because it defies normal experience. It's, it's not something normal. You can't explain it. Which is what we saw earlier in Acts when all of this was, it was taking place, right? They were amazed. They were astonished. Why? Because it went beyond explanation. But instead of wonder so much talking about the action, it's more talking about the reaction. It's talking about the astonishment and the reaction that someone else has on the basis of watching this wonderful work, which is a little bit of a nuance. And then finally, a sign. What does that represent? That's, that's an event. That's an indication or a, or a confirmation of an intervention by, by something greater. It's, it's to make something clear, but not just to make something clear. Actually, it's pointing to a truth. And, and so the idea is that, that all these things don't occur by themselves. That the miracles, the wonders, the signs, they're all being used to what? To point a certain direction. And to validate the message. The message that Jesus was preaching. And it's going to be the same way for the apostles. That these wonderful, miraculous acts that we're going to see in the book of Acts. These are things done in order to validate the messenger and ultimately to point them to Christ. And no doubt that the sign that that was being presented with, with Jesus is and at the beginning was the fact that he was the Messiah. But now the sign that, that we see even being represented in Acts chapter 2 is a sign showing that the new age has dawned. We are now in a new dispensation. We're now in this church age. But notice too that, that when, when he talks about these, these miracles, these wonders, these signs, he, he doesn't explain them. He doesn't say, and, and what I mean is this, and what I mean is that. He, he just leaves that out. There's no further elaboration. And why do you think that is? Well, well he tells us. Look, look at the very last half of this verse. Verse 22. Signs which God performed through Him in your midst. So it happened within your midst when you were there, just as you yourselves know. And so they actually know that, that these things happened. And, and this knowledge is, is, is to know about something, but not in a personal way. So it's as, almost as if they knew what happened but they didn't know about who was doing it. They missed it somewhere. And obviously they missed it because they they end up, as we're going to see, 
killing their own Savior. I think the point here is that if they were going to reject Jesus, they're going to reject the message that Peter is about to preach, he's letting them know that it's not going to be based upon ignorance. It's not going to be based upon the fact that they don't know anything about this Jesus. In fact, it's the complete opposite. They know everything about him. They've seen it validated in the way that he lived. If they're going to reject Christ, it's it's probably going to be because of three things. One, because of unbelief. Two, because of their own desire to live their lives the way they want to live. And, and third, be honestly, because of hostility and hatred towards Christ and towards God. Where, where would I get that idea from? Well, I, I get it from Jesus himself. L- listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 24 to 25. This is amazing. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. That is the reason why if they are not going to accept, it's because they hate Christ. Because they hate God. And you know what? We're going to see this displayed throughout the book of Acts. As we will see, as we'll see at the end of of chapter 2 here, many, many repent. Many come to salvation. But many too respond in anger and hatred and actually try to kill the apostles. But he doesn't just deal with, with the life of Christ. Look at what he deals with next. Jesus' death. Verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So next he's presenting them with Jesus' death, which they played a part in. Not only do they play a part or actually witness his life, but they actually played a part in his death. The word here, delivered over, is... It's more explicative. It explains a lot more than just deliver over. You can deliver over a whole bunch. I can deliver over a pizza to you after this and you guys can eat lunch. It's not talking about delivering over a pizza. It's, it's confined and it's the idea of surrendering someone to their enemies. That, that's what's in focus here. And, and notice who the one is that is surrendering Jesus over to his enemies. It's God. It's God the Father. Perhaps some of the listeners might, might have been thinking something like this. They were tracking with Peter and they thought, okay, I get it. So if this Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, is indeed the Messiah, is indeed God, then why did He allow us to kill Him? Why didn't He stop that? And Peter gives them the answer. Because it was God's plan. What does he say? He he says two amazing facts. Delivered over by what? The predetermined plan. This is the word that we get horizon from, which is is used to mark a boundary. A boundary of what? Of of the earth from the sky. And so in essence, that's that's what God is doing. He's he's marking a boundary saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. 
I'm going to give Christ over to sin-filled men that are going to crucify Him. As part of what? As part of His predetermined plan. But, but it's not just His predetermined plan, it's also His foreknowledge. And the foreknowledge of God. God's omniscient wisdom and intentionality combined. And, and in the Greek, there, there's a nuance in the meaning that, that actually brings forth the idea that, that his foreknowledge was the instrument that God is using to orchestrate all these things. As a skilled surgeon would, would use a scalpel in a surgery, that, that God is using his foreknowledge, his omniscient wisdom, along with his intentionality to orchestrate all these things to allow this to come up. Not that he looks into the future and sees this unraveling and then adjusts. Know that he actually predetermined and planned this to happen exactly this way. What is Peter's point? His point is clear. This is God's plan. And this has been God's plan all along. Jesus' death does not take God by surprise. Not at all. Then he goes on and he, and he says, "By you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Godless probably isn't the, the best translation. It, it's more the idea of lawless men. And, and, and it's speaking towards the, the Israelite legal tradition. And, and, and really their kind of moral code, the way that Israelites would function. And it's saying that, that it can't be that kind of person. So who's it pointing to? It's pointing to the Romans. Saying, yes, even the Romans and what they did to him was part of God's plan. Is that really what you're saying, Pastor Jason? No, that's what God's Word says. That this is part of God's plan. This is what he predetermined. And finally it says, and put him to death. Now, I don't, I don't want to geek you all out with, with too much grammar here, but just try to follow along with me because this is so neat. And, and, and what you have to recognize that, that in the Greek, up to this point, all of those verbs are participles, meaning go, you know, it has the ing at the end. And participles don't carry the same weight as a normal verb. The only normal verb here is put him to death. He's putting emphasis on the fact that, that, that they put him to death. It'd be like me saying, okay, going to the beach, wading in the water, I found a hundred dollar bill. What am I emphasizing? What verb is taking all of the weight? It's not the going to the beach and wading in the water. That's just, those are kind of background. That's background information. What am I really trying to communicate to you all? I'm trying to communicate, man, I found a hundred bucks. That's exactly what, what Peter's doing here. He's, he's not saying that the fact that, that God delivering him over or these men nailing him to a cross isn't important. No, it is important. But really the main thrust is that you put him to death. You hear that I am talking to. Very pointed. But he, he doesn't finish with that, right? Next, he's, he's going to go on to something that is oh so important that, that oftentimes I... I think is left out when we think of a, of a gospel presentation. We rush through and sometimes we forget this, the, the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. And look where he goes next. Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I love this verse. 
this verse is so rich and so deep that, that it just explains something that goes so far beyond me, I, 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 I can't even grasp the significance of it even in, in, in a minute way. Notice here first, who is the one being active? I think sometimes we tend to think that it was Christ that raised himself from the dead. But, but what does the text say? But God raised him up again. We, we need to be reminded that God is the active one in salvation. That God is the one seeking us out. That he accomplishes redemption. And he was the one that raised Christ from the dead. And on, on top of this, if Christ's suffering and Christ's death was all part of God's predetermined plan, then no doubt His resurrection was part of God's predetermined plan too. And that, that can give so much confidence to us. And I believe that same confidence is in Christ as we're going to see in the Psalm 16 quotation that, that Peter gets into next. The, this verse is, is emphatically giving us insight into something that's might, might I say the most important aspect of our Christian faith? The resurrection? Think about it. We take the resurrection of Christ out of the picture and what are we left with? If we do not have a risen Savior, then we are lost in our sins. That death would conquer us as well. Because if He couldn't handle death, there's no way that you and I can. And so while the, the miracles of Jesus are important, they do validate who He is. And, and while His death is important, it does purchase our salvation. The proof, the proof that He is the Messiah and that He will reign forever and ever is in the resurrection. And I believe this is further emphasized in, in, in the fact that he uses one verse to explain Jesus' life. He uses one verse to explain his death. But now when he gets to the resurrection, he spends the next nine verses expanding on this. And, and I think it's because at times, you and I forget the significance behind the resurrection. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. That word pudding, putting an end, is, is to do away with, or it could be to destroy, it could be to bring an end to, or it can mean this, it can mean to loose or undo something that, that is tied up or constrained, to untie bonds. And isn't this a great picture of what Christ has accomplished? This is what Christ did with death. We were shackled, we were shamed, chained, with death, but Christ came and what did He do? He untied the chains of death that, that were holding us back, that we would have, if He hadn't done this, spent forever in hell separated from God. You know, when, when we were in Papua New Guinea and we got to the point to where the New Testament was finished and we were having a, a New Testament Bible dedication, the, the Siawi people, the, the church and, and the elders in particular, came up with the whole program as to how we were going to do this big Bible dedication. And it was crazy. It was three, four, five hours and they had everything marked out as to when I would speak and when this guy would speak and when this and this and this and that. But they weren't telling me about something that was going to start the whole thing. 
And, and I never saw it until it unfolded right before my eyes as they started this whole time. And it was a skit. And the skit was so cool. They, they had two of the oldest people in our village get completely done up with black ash, a sign of, of mourning. And, and then they wrapped them with jungle vines all over their body so they could hardly move and they were just lying on the ground. And those on the ground were saying things like this, Oh, I'm, I'm chained by death by sin. I can't get up. I can't move. I have no hope. I can't do anything to save myself. I'm in such a terrible state. And then, and then the missionaries come. And they're holding God's Word. And they bring God, God's Word. And then these on the ground say, But then we heard. We heard the life-giving message of Christ. And our bonds... And then somehow they got these vines that could, they could break. And they broke the bonds. And, and that is the picture of what Christ did. But, but listen, it, it, it gets even better. Because it says, since it was impossible for him to be held. This literally could, could be understood as death was not capable, death was not powerful enough, was not able, was not competent, it did not possess the power, was, it was not possible for death to hold him. Man, if there's any time where you guys could say amen, I think right here would be the time to say amen. It, it could not hold him. What is his point? Death could not hold Christ back. There was no way that death was going to hold him back. It was an impossibility because of who he was. And after giving these facts about Christ's life and death and resurrection, Peter once again takes them back to the Word of God. And, and, and he moves to, to another quotation of Scripture found in Psalm 16. And he's going to use these verses to add more proof and validity, validity to the fact that we're, what he's talking about is a risen Lord and Savior. In particular, he's talking about Jesus Christ. So, so let's look at verse 25. And what we're going to see is Jesus is Lord. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Notice first what David says, says of him. So this isn't speaking of David as, as um, many Jews would, would have read Psalm 16 for years and years and thought, oh, this is, this is David giving a first person that, that David is saying, I saw the Lord always in my presence. David is saying that, that he will not be shaken. But no, this is talking about Christ. And what Peter is doing is, is he's interpreting the Scripture for them. He's letting them know, no, you, get, you guys have missed this all this time. What this is talking about is the Messiah. And you know who the Messiah is? It's Jesus, the Nazarene. I saw the Lord always in my presence. What does that speak of? That, that speaks of the eternality of Christ. The fact that He was part of the Trinity. He is part of the Trinity. That from eternity past, forever, He's been with God, the Father. And then when it, when it says, I saw the Lord, that's, that's actually that you, that you would see His face. And when he says, for he is at my right hand, that's talking about protection. That Christ recognized, even then, pointing forward, that at the time when he would think that, that, that God would abandon him, that he wouldn't abandon him. Yes, I know, it turns dark, and so everybody thinks, oh, God turns his back on... Well, could, God, could Christ ever stop being God? I don't know. You think about that. 
And then look, look at what he says in 26. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. He, he gives us three depictions, the heart, the tongue, and the flesh. And that's representative of the whole person. Why? Because Christ became flesh. And so he actually believed, knew this and, and suffered as a man. And yet, even in his suffering, he has hope. What is his hope based upon? His hope is based upon the relationship that he's had with, with God the Father from all of eternity. And that the fact is that God had preordained this plan. And that indeed God was going to what? God was going to raise him up. And that everything was going to work out. And that's why he says in 27, Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This word Hades here is the same word that Luke uses in Luke 16, talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And, and, and it's, it's, it could be termed the word for hell, could be Gehenna, could be Sheol. It's the place where the dead are gathered for judgment. And, and Christ is saying that, that he knows that that is not going to be his permanent place, even taking on flesh, even being crucified. Why? Because he knows that he's not going to be abandoned. He's not going to be left to that. And how do I know this is talking about Christ instead of King David? Well, because look at how he depicts him. Nor allow your holy one. David was many things, but he was not a holy one. The only holy one that has walked the face of this earth was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only sinless one ever. Right? So this is talking about Christ to undergo de- decay. It's, it's interesting to note that, that the Jewish people always thought of the, the resurrection as, as a corporate act, something that included basically all people, the unsaved and the saved, and, and that that would happen on the final day of judgment, uh, according to like Isaiah 66, Daniel chapter 12. But they had no perception of, of an immediate kind of special resurrection of, say, one particular person, as this is talking about. And, and it seems clear that Peter's using this verse to expand their understanding of what the resurrection means and the fact that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to be resurrected and he would then be the first fruits of all to follow. And that is where the hope comes from. And you would think that that would give him joy, that it would give the Jewish people joy, which is where we see verse 28 go to next. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. If we were to turn to back to Psalm 16 and, and we were to look at this in the Hebrew, we would find that, that that's not a plural word for ways there. It's actually a singular, which may not be important to you, but but if that is indeed where this is coming from, then, then a better translation would be the way of life. The way in particular in the context of the resurrected life. And so I believe what, what 
what we're seeing here is that Christ was confident that he was going to be the first to enjoy that way of life, of the resurrected life, and, and, and one day come back into the presence of who? God the Father, as it says it at the end of 28. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Literally, that, that again means that the face of a person. This, this shows how, how glad Christ was when, when, when he was thinking about finishing the work of redemption and being brought back into the presence of God the Father without the limit that he had on, on this earth as he, as he, in a crazy way, laid his deity aside. Not that he wasn't God, but that it, it was kind of masked. So, what was Jesus so excited about? He was excited about being in the presence of God. And that caused me to think several times this week, man, how excited am I about coming into the presence of God? That, that's what this ends with. As I come to the Lord in, in the morning and pray, am I really excited about coming into the presence of my God? Have I really rejoiced in the salvation that I have in Him? And, I, and I'd like to ask you the same question this morning. How excited is the presence of God to you? That you can approach Him. That you can pray to Him. And that one day you will stand in His presence. Now for those of us who know the Lord, who've trusted Him as Savior, that's not a scary proposition. But maybe there's some here, when you think of that, it's kind of fearful. And well, it should be. Because to stand in God's presence and not have your sin dealt with means that He'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And you will spend the rest of eternity in hell paying for your sins. But for those of us who understand what Peter is talking about, who understand that, that Jesus came and He lived a perfect life, that He then died on the cross, not for His sins, but for my sins, for those who would trust in Him. And that that didn't end there, but that He rose again, giving me hope, giving me assurance, knowing that I can rise again because Christ was the first one. And so death no longer has power over those of us who have trusted Him. Man, where are you this morning in that? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you recognize that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, that that is why Jesus came? Please, I, can, I ask you to consider that this morning. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way to the Father but through Him. There's no other way for your sins to be forgiven but through Him. Coming to church doing all these wonderful things will not help. The only way is through Christ. And if you would like to talk more about that after the service, please come forward and, and, and speak with, with one of us. So what have we seen today? Well, we've seen the amazing truth about Christ's life that it was a validation by God that He was indeed God, that He was indeed the Savior. We, we've seen that, that 
the death of Christ was something predetermined, planned by God, and that the resurrection of Christ was done by God and that death could not hold Christ. Could not hold Him down at all. And we should rejoice over that fact. But what can you take with you this week? And, and I pass these on. I've been, I've been mulling over this all week. So, so now you get to think about the same things I've been thinking about. The first one is the, the fact that it was God's plan to give Jesus over to be crucified. As soon as you totally understand sovereignty, please come and fill me in. <laughs> because this, again, just goes beyond my understanding. That God planned this. That He knew this was going to happen. And, and yet, the, the men that were involved, it, it was their choosing. Our God is an amazing God. And that should give us so much confidence for what happens in the future. No matter what comes, that we can trust what? We can trust our God because He planned this to that extent. He is looking after us. And so the second part is how can this encourage you in facing trials this week? The second thing is consider this week how God has made known to you the way of life. Salvation. Let's rejoice this week in the salvation that we have that came through and comes only through Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for the salvation that comes in and only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross to pay the the penalty, the punishment for sin. Thank you for making yourself known to those of us that know you as our Lord and Savior. And for those here this morning that do not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance, that they would turn to you in faith, that they would trust you as their Savior, that they would accept your free gift of salvation. Go with us from here now continue to write your word upon our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.